You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. And uh, if I'm a stranger to you, then I would love to meet you following our service today. I'll be standing in the back. Please introduce yourself to me. My name is Bill, and I am uh, glad to be able to be with you today and speak. I often am in uh, the other side in Oakmont, but I get to be up here. And it's always good when I can be, because um, it's good to see who God has brought together here. And over this season of Lent, we've been talking about Stranger Things and doing so, we're looking at some of the things that God did through these strange characters called the prophets. And uh, we have seen how God has used people like Elijah and people like Elisha and people like Hosea and Ezekiel and Daniel. And, and how these people, God gave them a job to do a couple things that were most important to them and really important to us today. The two things that they were called to do was speak out against the injustices of their day and to call people back to God. Speak truth to power and bring people back to a relationship with the living God. And God had used some pretty creative communication tools through these people to help them do that. Today we want to take a look at one more of those Old Testament prophets. And his name is Isaiah. We read the scripture. Trey read the scripture a little bit ago. But I want you to turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 53. While you're turning there, Isaiah was a prophet speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, after the divide of the northern and southern kingdoms, and after the northern kingdom had been destroyed, or right as that was happening. He was talking about the coming tragedy that would happen to Jerusalem and Judah when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would come and conquer Jerusalem and take people away into exile. And why would God allow such a terrible thing to happen to God's people? Because God's people had strayed from God. Uh, their leadership had become corrupt and began to worship other gods and not along just worship the other gods, but do some of the immoral things that the other gods, the worship of the other gods would include. Temple prostitution, uh, even, even it was said child sacrifice was a part of some of the, 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 the worship of the false gods. So, so God was seeing their people straying and, and out of love for them, he was going to teach them a lesson and so the whole first half of Isaiah's prophecy, the whole first 39 chapters, is all about the doom and gloom that was coming upon them in the near future. But then beginning with chapter 40 on, the rest of Isaiah, he, he says, okay, after this time of suffering, after our time of being in exile, there is hope that God has another plan. So, so Isaiah's prophecy is divided into two parts. The first part is all the... The, the prophet of doom things, and then the second part is all about God still has a plan for God's people. God still wants to bring people back into a relationship with God, and God still will restore them back to their homes, and they can start over again. Do you like starting over again when you mess up? Anybody ever do that? In golf, we call it a mulligan, right? And uh, in life, we call it forgiveness. We call it mercy. And Jesus makes that possible for us. So here we want to take a look at this prophecy of Isaiah, and that's going to be just a launching point for us, and I'll explain why in just a minute. 
But the verse that, I, that Trey mentioned earlier, just verse 7, I want to touch on briefly here, speaks of this coming suffering servant, this one who would be used by God to some way help the people come back to God. Now, during this time, a lot of the prophets spoke of a Messiah who would come and and, and the Messiah would come and he would conquer over God's enemies and he would set up a kingdom that would not end and it would be like David's kingdom and they would be on top of the heap and everybody else would come to them for refuge and help and this Messiah would be the answer to all their prayers and everything would be good and he would conquer with might and power and strength. But Isaiah painted a picture of this person who would come and it wouldn't be like that. He'd be a different kind of a, a Messiah. In many ways, this is why Jews don't necessarily worship Jesus because he didn't fit their template of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They don't look at this passage and say, oh, that was Jesus. But speaking of that suffering servant, it says in Isaiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Years ago, shortly after the movie by the name came out, I was reading this passage and I preached a message called The Silence of the Lamb. And I thought, if I could make a movie called The Silence of the Lamb, what would that look like? And it would begin with this passage of scripture on the screen. And then that would go away. And then I would show a scene Maybe the act would be titled The Coming of the Lamb, though the people wouldn't see that. That's what the title of the act would be. But the scene would be this hot, arid desert. And people would be sort of walking out from the city to this place in the desert. And there would be this crazy guy, another one of those strange prophets by the name of John. And he would have on these crazy clothes, camel hair, eating crazy things. And he'd be preaching crazy messages about the people calling them back to God and speaking out against the corruption of his day. And John the Baptist would be preaching this kind of a message and people would be coming out into this arid desert to this little stream that's called the River Jordan. It's more like a, almost a stagnant creek. And, and, and people are coming to him and he's saying, get right with God, turn back to God, repent, start over with God. And he would baptize them. And then all of a sudden, one of these people that would be walking out, he would look at this person and John the Baptist would say, look, here, that one right there. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. We would see Jesus coming to John the Baptist to get baptized. And everybody there who would hear John say that would think the Lamb of God, that brings back their story. This is the story of those people that were coming out to be baptized that are called back to God. And they would remember Lamb of God. We know who the Lamb of God is. That reminds us of something that happened 1,300 years earlier when God's people were in bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. They were slaves. God called Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And this, all of a sudden, the people, this is our story. And so in the scene of the movie, I would go from this story of Jesus being baptized and I would show the next scene back in Egypt 1,300 years earlier. And there would be maybe a dad speaking to his oldest child and explaining to the oldest child, 
you see, honey, this is why we have to take the lamb and kill the lamb because God's going to set us free. And Moses told us that when the angel comes to, to, to uh, pronounce judgment, impute judgment on the people of Egypt and Pharaoh because of their, their injustice, that, that God's going to set God's people free. But when the angel of death passes through the land, those who have the blood of a lamb, a perfect lamb, the best lamb that we could find, that we would take the blood of that lamb and we would sacrifice it and we would eat the meat, but we would take the blood and we would cover it over the doorpost of our home so that when the angel comes, he will pass over us and we will be free. And finally, we won't be slaves anymore. And God has a better plan for us and a better place for us. And we'll be able to go there and we'll be able to worship our God and we'll be able to be made new. And so, son, so, honey, we don't want you to be the one to be taken. We want... God to pass over because all the firstborn of Egypt were going to die. And that's the beginning of the story of God's people with God, the Passover story, the story that tomorrow, even today, Jews around the world will tell that story to their children, the Passover story. And so I would see this, I would show this scene of the father explaining that to the child of why they have to do that. And then maybe I would show the scripture from Hebrews chapter 9 where, where it talks about, in, in according to the law of Moses, everything, because Moses led the people out. They'd get to Sinai, and God on Sinai would explain to the people how to worship their God and why it was necessary that they keep that imagery of the lamb alive. And so that whenever they would remember every year, they'd come and they'd have to take a lamb and sacrifice it and let the blood of the lamb be the sacrifice for the people for their sins, just to remind them that God can forgive their sins and God can wipe away their guilt and their shame. It says in Hebrews 9.22, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So I'd flash forward back again to that scene of John the Baptist there at the River Jordan and, and show Jesus being baptized to remind the people that he, the Lamb of God, would be this Lamb for the people. Then, then maybe I'd go to the exploits of the lamb, another scene maybe that would start. Because after Jesus' baptism, he went out into the wilderness where he was tempted, and then he began his three years of proving to the people that he was the Messiah because he would heal the sick. We'd, show, we'd have this big montage of Jesus healing the sick and delivering the demon-possessed and raising the dead and feeding the multitudes and teaching with passion and authority and, and making, uh, pointing out the, the, the evil of the self-righteousness of, of the religious status quo. And in the exploits of the lamb, I would, I would go ahead and sow a scene of this little lamb from birth, being nursed by its you, and then being raised into uh, adulthood as a, as a little lamb. And then the third part of this movie, the, the third act would be the silence of the lamb, and it would probably be in three parts too, and scene one would be the willingness of the lamb. And in that scene, I would, I would show Jesus having shared his last meal with his disciples, which was the Passover meal, 
where he would reenact the story of the people being delivered out of Egypt and the lambs being sacrificed. And he would take the bread and he would break it and he would say, this is my body that is broken for you. Whenever you get together, remember me. And then he would take the cup and he would say, this cup is now my blood that is shed for you, reenacting the very thing in their minds. Oh, this is the lamb thing. This is the lamb being slain so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free. This is the, Jesus said, that's my blood now. It will be shed for you that you might be free. And in this scene, Jesus would have that meal and then he would go out into the garden of Gethsemane and he knew what was coming, but others didn't necessarily get it. They couldn't put all the pieces together. For us, hindsight is twenty twenty, but for them, in the middle of it, they're not sure what's happening. But Jesus goes out and he spends the night praying, God, take this cup from me. Take this from me. He knew the suffering that he was going to endure. And he would say, disciples, please stay awake. Pray, help me stay awake. Pray for me. And they kept falling asleep and falling asleep. And then all of a sudden, in the darkness of cover, in the middle of the night, while Jesus is out there, he would hear some people walking in the distance and the sound of the footsteps would get closer and maybe he would see a few torches lighting the path for them. And then all of a sudden, they would come to where he was praying by himself. And his one disciple, Judas, would come by and hug him and give him a kiss. And he knew what that meant. And they went to arrest Jesus and the disciples now. They woke up. They're wide awake at this point. One of them pulls out a sword, tries to defend Jesus, cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest who came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angel, angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say this must happen this way? <clears throat> you see, in the garden, Jesus prayed, God, Take it from me, take it from me, take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus could have defended himself. He could have fought for himself. He could have, he could have called the angels to, to uh, keep him from being arrested, but no. He, he was willing to go through with it. He went to the cross willingly. And maybe he remembered the, the words of John the Baptist who said, here, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew what that meant. He went to the cross willingly. And maybe I would close that scene with a, a shot of a lamb, that lamb that we saw being nourished and growing into adulthood now, hearing the call of the master to come and follow him. And we would see in the master's hands the knife that would be used to sacrifice him. And the lamb stumbles along the way, but follows the master's call, knowing that he wasn't calling him to dinner. He was calling him to some place where he had never gone before. And then the next scene in this movie, in the script, it would be titled, The Solitude of the Lamb. Because when Jesus was arrested, where did his disciples go? They all scattered. They all ran for their lives. They took off. This is trouble. I don't want to be around trouble. I'm out of here. 
And it says in Matthew 26, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion to the people that came to arrest him? He said that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Why? Because Jesus was going to go to the cross alone. Why? Because we don't want to do it. You and I don't want to do it. Like the disciples, we want to save our own necks. When trouble comes, we'll point the finger, we'll place blame, we'll run for our lives, we'll deny that we ever even had any part of this. Like Peter, whenever they said to Peter, don't you know this guy as Jesus was arrested? Weren't you with him? Don't you belong to him? Who, me? Not me. No way. Three times denying that he even knew Jesus. Because we don't want to go through what Jesus went through. We don't want to have to suffer for what we do wrong. The other reason why Jesus went alone was only Jesus could do what Jesus did. Only one who was holy and spotless. Only one who was without sin. Only one who was big enough to be God and yet human enough to be Jesus could sacrifice, become the sacrifice for the sins of the world. It wasn't just another man. And maybe in that scene, I would close with the camera panning back from that lamb who now is alone and the other lambs, you could see them maybe in the distance running away from the master. And you could see there in the land, the master on one side of the screen waiting for the lamb to come to him. And then the final scene, the silence of the lamb. Jesus gets arrested. He's brought before the religious authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, the know-it-alls the legalists, the rule followers, the ones who want to save their necks so they're going to use Jesus as a scapegoat for the government to keep them off of their backs. They've got to have somebody else to get the government to point the finger and blame on. He's the troublemaker. And so they, they trump up these witnesses, these false witnesses to make these accusations about Jesus. They, they, they give these conflicting reports about what Jesus said and who Jesus was. And the whole time, Jesus is remaining silent. I heard you say you're the king of the Jews. And he said, well, as you say, oh, that's blasphemy. They ridiculed him. They pulled out his beard. They spat upon him. They smacked him. They stripped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And he started to suffer. He's suffering already. And he didn't open his mouth. Well, we got to get the government in on this too because we got to help them. We got to make them be a part of this. We don't want to get in any trouble. Let's take them to Pilate. So they take them to Pilate. Pilate, who's this guy? What did he do? I don't understand this. Why are you asking me to do this? People said, oh, he's a blasphemer. Oh, we hear that the priest wants us to say these things. So they all fall in line, you know, the whole mob mentality. 
Well, I have this guy who really was arrested for being a rebel and starting revolution. His name's Barabbas, and I have this Jesus. Okay, so I'll appease you. I'll tell you what, pick, pick who you want to be released, Jesus or Barabbas. And the crowd says, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. I wash my hands of the thing. He's yours, do what you want with them. Take Jesus. Silent. 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 It says in Matthew 27, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. But then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? And Jesus made no reply. Not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. And we know what happens after that. Jesus goes to the cross, suffers, dies. So I got to ask a question if I were to make a movie like this, what would it be rated? Would you rate it? It surely wouldn't be a G rating, would it? I mean, that's pretty ugly. I doubt if it would even be a PG-13 if you show the actual brutality and violence of it all. Like the Passion of the Christ, it'd have to be a R-rated movie. But I thought the story of Jesus was all sugar and spice, you know? Love your enemies, be kind to everybody, you know? Do to others what you want them to do. Meek and mild Jesus. Now, really, the real story of Jesus is it's pretty brutal. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty depressing. Why do you think the movie would be so depressing? Well, let me give you one suggestion. <laughs> because evil and sin is depressing. It's ugly. I confess, I watch too much news. It makes me depressed. God knows what's going to be on Fox and CNN before it ever gets on the news. And God hates it. Sees the ugliness, the evil, the stupidity, the selfishness, the injustices. It's all ugly. And God wanted us to know how ugly it really was. So God became an innocent human lamb who said, I, I'll show you how ugly it is. Look at what it does to me. This is what you do. This is what I do. When we become full of ourselves, when we cut corners and cheat and lie and steal and do whatever we can to get ahead and we deny that we're culpable for anything in our lives. Oh, everybody does it. We're all in the same boat. Yeah, we are. We're all sinners. We've all turned away from God and gone our own way. This whole thing, this Messiah that would come and suffer, was just a stumbling block to the Jews. As I said, they, they wanted a Messiah who was going to come, not riding in on a donkey, but riding in on a great white horse who would come and destroy the Romans, who had set up another kingdom like David's, and they would be powerful, and they would conquer their enemies, and they would rule over everybody else, and everybody else would have to come to them for food and for shelter and for help because God would set us up as kings over the rest of the world. But then this Messiah comes, this, this servant, he comes and he does all these miracles and he proves that he's divinity and yet he dies a horrible, shameful, awful criminal's death. 
It says in 1 Corinthians, Paul writing, the teaching about the cross is foolishness to those who are being lost, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world and it's through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks or Gentiles. But to those whom God has chosen, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are different than our ways. So in this story, who was the executioner of Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the governor? Was it the government? Was it the crowd? Was it all the people? Well, the answer is yes. And no. Because ultimately, this was God's plan. It was God's will to become the one who would bear humanity's sin. It says in Isaiah 53, later on in that chapter, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins." And I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. And that's us. Because we rebelled against God. We've gone our own ways. I'm a rebel. You're a rebel. Every time we do the, what we know isn't right, we rebelled against God and it's sin. God had to show how ugly that is in God's eyes. And so we see the story that we've heard this morning played out throughout Scripture. You see, Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world in some generic global way. Because that's the way I grew up thinking. You know, I, I grew up going to church when I was a kid. I'd go to Sunday school, go to church, couldn't wait to get out of there, <laughs> go home and play. And then I got to junior high and I just got so bored with it. But I learned growing up that, you know, these are the holidays that we celebrate. Christmas, Jesus was born. Palm Sunday, Jesus 
rode in on a donkey and we got these little palm branches and it was a happy day, although I wasn't sure. And then Good Friday, I couldn't understand what was good about that because that's the day Jesus died. What was good about that? But Easter Sunday was fun, man. You wake up, great. Get presents, eat candy. Wonderful, love it. It's a new spring, new springs come, it's great. All that fun stuff. And, and all of that was to say Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. That's what we believe. But I never could understand that, yeah, he died for the sins of all the world. And back then, we Methodists, you know, we believe better than everybody else. Everybody else said they believe better. The Catholics believe better. The, Pro the Presbyterians believe better. You know what? It wasn't until I was a little older and somebody invited me to come and I heard the story a little differently and I realized, you know what? Jesus didn't just die for the world that was broken and fallen. He didn't just live a good life to show us how to be good boys and girls. But Jesus died because I was a rebel. Because I was a sinner. And when he died on the cross, it wasn't just for the world. It was for me. It was for you. And when that light went on for me, I realized I needed to own up for that. I needed to admit that I too had rebelled against God, that I too was not good enough for God, that God had to accept me because I was better than other people. I realized that God had not to accept me, but he had to make me acceptable. So that's what the Lamb is all about. Jesus became my guilt, my sin, the ugliness of my wrongdoing and my own willfulness and my own rebellions. Jesus showed that he would take all of that on himself as only one who was God could do. And Jesus bore on himself the sins of Bill Ellis, the sins of every one of us in this room who would believe in him. And the Lamb of God, Jesus, God himself, willfully said, I'll take it so that you can be right. The innocent for the guilty so that the guilty could be made innocent. That's the story of the Lamb of God, the silent Lamb who went to the cross for you and for me. And so in my movie, we would show Jesus on that Black Friday And if you don't come on Good Friday to Oakmont to celebrate our Good Friday, which is going to be very moving and powerful, you're going to miss something very powerful. I invite you to come 7 o'clock on Oakmont Friday. But the movie that I would make would end with Jesus dying on the cross and the fade to black and everything would go silent and people would be sitting there in the theater with the lights out and it'd be dark. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time if they would very quietly prepare. And then in this movie, maybe the movie would start to, or the sound would start to play some music and maybe the credits would start to roll and people would think that it was all over. 
it would have to be really perfect for this to work. People would think, okay, should we get up and leave now? Just when they're ready to stand up, boom, the screen would go bright white and it would blind their eyes and there would be Jesus resurrected in front of them, standing there. And then I would show this scene of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, described as it's described in the book of Revelation in heaven, in this scene in heaven from John, speaking about it in Revelation. And there in this place, this scene, there would be this scroll that's supposed to is tell the meaning of the whole story and understand it all. And nobody was able to open the scroll. And it says there in Revelation, no one could read it. And John says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. And then one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing. And he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, to open it. For you are slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and peoples and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on earth. And then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who had been slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for you and me. I realized when the light came on for me that I needed Jesus in my life. I needed to own up. I needed to pray, Jesus, help me, a sinner. I'm, I'm lost. I don't know which way to go. I'm not sure who I am or how I should live. Jesus, come into my life. And Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit into the earth so that we could be reminded of Jesus and all he did and what he was like and we could be like him. And so, Jesus, I pray, come into my life. And the Spirit came into my heart and something changed. Something happened. My eyes were opened. And and I saw Jesus differently. And I said, I'm going to follow him. And yeah, I battle that rebel in me all the time. But I realize that that rebel is not the who, who I really am. And I try to follow Jesus with him leading me. And I wonder if you've never done that, today's the day to ask Jesus. Today's the day to invite Jesus to come into your heart. Today's the day to say, Jesus, you did this for me. I need you. I need you. I need you. Would you bow your heads with me real quickly, please?
I wonder if you're here and maybe all these strange stories that I've shared and these strange stories that we've talked about have been reminders to you that it's time for you to come back to God. It's time for you to be able to say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Or maybe, Jesus, I've strayed from you and I need you to be the leader of my life right now. Thank you that you did that for me and I know I need you. Jesus, come into my life. Come into my heart in my heart. Would you just say that right now to him? Jesus, I want you. I need you. I love you. I follow you. Jesus, come. Be my leader. Be my guide. I want to follow you, Jesus. I give my life to you. I surrender to you. You, the Lamb of God, took away my sins, and I accept that, and I receive it, and I believe it, and I want to live it for your glory. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.